Well, if you have a Bible with you, find Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And it is truly an honor and truly a pleasure of mine to have the privilege and the opportunity to open God's Word that He's given to us so graciously and be equipped and edified and encouraged by it this morning. And so I don't take that responsibility lightly, and it is a privilege, and it is a great responsibility, and I'm so thankful that I get to do it with you all this morning. Before we get to our text, it'll be, actually it'll be a little while before we get to our text, but we are in part two of a series called How It's Done. And this series is, is extremely important as we start a new year and as we continue to journey in this vision of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It is so important, it is extremely vital that we as the body gathered together here in person and online for those who are sick who are tuning in today, that we look to the scriptures as our, our primary influence and guide as we, as we do the work of the ministry as the church in this specific community. And so we're looking at the church that we see in the book of Acts and there are several churches that are represented throughout the chapters here in this wonderful book in the New Testament. And we have specifically talked about the church in Jerusalem over the last couple of weeks. But because the gospel is so powerful and because Jesus is so important in the lives of people, that message didn't just stay in Jerusalem. That message has, has been spirit-influenced, and it has spread beyond Jerusalem to different regions at this point in the storyline. And as I talked about last week, we are gathered here today because of the faithfulness and the obedience to the mission of Jesus in this church here in the book of Acts. And so... This church is our model church. This church did not have all of the things that we talk about in our current culture that they were dealing with. They didn't have media and all the technology and all the things to navigate. But they had people. And they had the gospel. And they had the spirit of God living inside of them. And they were unstoppable. And so our key verse for this series is in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, where it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is what God does in his church when it's focused on things that he thinks we should be focused on. This is what God does. It's his work. It's our witness. We are involved. He uses us. We are a piece in this puzzle that he's putting together in this world. And he has commanded us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature and to baptize them and to teach them and to send them out to do the work of the ministry. Last week, we looked at the first key part of this verse here in Acts 9.31, the issue of peace. We talked about how a lack of peace 
in our lives and in the church that, that it causes, it causes some, some things that we, we don't need and that doesn't feel very good. We don't like to feel unrest. And we discovered that there are, we know that there are, there are mountains of things that can affect peace inside the church. Some of those things we make up on our own. Some of those things are biblical. But we focused in on three of the main areas that rob a church of peace. Now, this church here in Jerusalem and in, in, and in Galilee and Samaria, these churches, they were experiencing persecution. And we, we may have in the past, we may experience persecution in the future. That could come our way. We have to be ready Yes, but there are some other things that the church throughout the New Testament dealt with. That the church didn't just deal with persecution because they followed Jesus. There are, there are churches, and these churches are filled with people, and people are people, nothing more than that. And so when people get involved in anything, it can get messy really fast. And so throughout the New Testament, we see Peter and John and Paul and James, these writers, they're constantly dealing with all of these things that creep up inside of the church that will steal the church of its peace. And so the first thing that we highlighted last week as an enemy of peace was false teaching. To watch out for false teaching. And false teaching isn't just, oh, hey, we disagree on this finer point of something, you know, that's not necessarily a major issue. Maybe that could be the gift of tongues or not. That's not a, a false teaching, by the way. And so that would be an issue that, that, that comes up in the church, but we can navigate that. But these are things that the early church was dealing with where there were a group of people that were teaching that there was something more than Jesus. That there was something more that was needed than just the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They actually were teaching that this resurrection of Jesus had not happened yet. And so it created a ton of disunity inside the church. So we have to watch out for false teaching. The second thing that we talked about was the issue of gossip. We all have experienced gossip. Every single one of us has participated in the sin of gossip. If you want to see a church be wrecked very rapidly, participate in gossip. Gossip is one of the biggest issues inside of every church. So we have to be careful. It's an enemy of peace. And the last thing was idol worship, where Paul points out that there are several things that could go on the list that, that sinful desires, immorality, covetousness, these types of things, they will rob the church of peace. A quick disclaimer. I got caught up in a moment last week, and some of you caught this because I saw a bunch of weird faces. I said, put to death all of these idols, and I listed them, and some of them were your husband. Some of them were your wife and your children. I did not mean put your children or your spouses to death. I was caught up in the moment. So I was pointing out that we can make those things idols, and we, made, we need to put the idol to death. So um, I didn't receive any nasty emails or anything, but my wife was like, she, I could see it in her face. I'm like, I just said something stupid. <laughs> and so just so you know, I don't want anyone to be put to death today but the sin in your own heart. So, 
How do we have peace? How do we have peace? We do not have peace by agreeing on every single thing that we like. We will never have peace when we talk about preferences. It's impossible. That is not peace that is biblical anyways. But we are to make every effort to be at peace, not with our idea of what church should look like, but with each other. Because peace is influenced relationally. So, we are at peace when we make every effort to be at it with each other. Peace is the fruit of love and of service. So we are called to love one another and serve one another in humility. And the big question that we asked last week was, do your actions pursue peace or do they prevent peace? Peace or the lack of it influences so many things in our lives. And relationships is the biggest one. And so that's going to be our focus continued today. But if we want to build something, as we come to the second part of the verse, it says they had peace and were being built up. If we want to build something, we need a blueprint. We need a plan that tells us how we are to build the thing that we, we need to build, that we should build, that God would desire us to build in this case. Now, have you ever gotten a piece of furniture from Ikea? How many of you have ever gotten a piece of furniture from Ikea? I mean, there's got to be a few of you, right? Yes. I'm with the best of them when it comes to trying a lot of things on my own and then making a mess of it. I do that a lot. But that's for normal projects, not an Ikea project. Here's an example. Like, that's a tree. It's going to be a long night, right? I mean, these are, this is what it looks like. You get, this, you get a book. With your, with your product, and it's, you just, you know, it's going to be, a, sanctification is happening tonight. <laughs> Some of you were doing that the night before Christmas for your kids and their gifts in your basements. I don't know. But when it comes to building up a church, we don't have to guess at a lot of things. We don't have to just use trial and error, although sometimes you try things and they don't work. Sometimes they fail. You don't have to use trial and error to put things into place only to have to undo them later because you messed it up. God doesn't make us wonder what we're supposed to do as his people in this world. He gives us a blueprint for how to build a church for his honor and for his glory alone. But how do we build? How do we build? What does it mean when it says that the church had peace and was being built up? And I'm so glad you asked me that question this morning, because I'm going to tell you. There are a few things that I want to cover before we talk about this being built up part. So this church here in, in Acts 9, they had peace, but we're going to be looking at the church in Ephesus. And so the church in Ephesus was planted in the book of Acts. And so if you know your history, the church in Ephesus was planted around A.D. 53, which was roughly, you know, 20-ish years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A lot happens in the timeline of Acts, by the way. It's not just, oh, hey, a quick journey across town. It's, it's decades of ministry that are represented inside of the book of Acts. And so you can find this church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 if you'd like to do a study of that sometime. But this church was a church that pursued peace inside of the church in and everything that it did, and everyone was doing their part. 
And if they hadn't, the church wouldn't have survived. And honestly, West Hill and the churches that we see today may not be here today because this church was not focused on what God had called it to be focused on. And so we see that Paul spends over three years in this church. And if you're there in Acts chapter 4, we're going to begin reading together in verse 1. Paul writes this to the church, and this book is awesome all the way through, but chapter 4 is incredible. And so Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now we have studied this text probably three or four times this year alone. That's how important this text is. He continues in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Before we move on, I want to point out, there's a lot there. The general synopsis is simple. That every believer who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is saved by the same grace and the same faith and the same Savior. We all come to him the same way. Separated because of sin and need of a Savior and Jesus saves us. The, the, the really bad person and the not so bad person as we like to gauge things. We're all saved by the same grace and the same faith. And then we are called to walk differently. This connects back to last week where we talked about the very verses we just read. Where they had peace because they were walking together in humility, in unity, patiently working together. And there's one God, and he is in charge. That's the synopsis of those six verses right there. We are all saved by the same grace. We are to walk with one another. We are to walk in a manner that's worthy of this gospel that has saved us. We're to treat each other through, we're to, we're to walk with each other through the lens of the gospel. And we do it all because we follow God and he's in charge. So that's what sets the table for what he says next. In verse 7 he says that we're given gifts. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So we live in unity under this, this triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They are in complete unity together. So we are unified in that example of unity. And then... He gives his people gifts, and he's given us all that we need. He's given you, the moment that you called on him to save you, he gave you what you needed to do the work that he was going to call you to do. Personal gifts for serving others, and this is not just about talents, by the way. Although talents sometimes comes into play, but there is a gifts versus talents part of this conversation. You see, we don't control gifts. I don't control the gifts that God has given me. You don't control the gifts that God has given you. They cannot be manufactured. They are given to us by our holy God. Talents and skills, those are things that, that can be acquired. 
They can be trained for, but everyone has a spiritual gift, and the spiritual gift exists not for our own glory, but for God's glory, for building up the body of Christ. So, so we see this issue of the church in Acts, the church in Jerusalem and Samaria and Galilee, and throughout the, the regions, they, were, they had peace and they were being built up because men and women were empowered by the Spirit and given gifts, and these gifts built people up. So, no one can say this morning that they don't have something that they can contribute. We can all contribute. So what are some of the gifts that God gives to his people? And this has been debated for decades and centuries. And there's a lot of room for debate when it comes to this conversation. But you can write this down. It'll be on the screen. In Romans 12, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. This word for prophecy means that it's a proclaimer of God's message. A, a prophet is a proclaimer of God's message, something that God has given to man. And so in the Old Testament, this was God verbally speaking to men and leading them to share. In the New Testament, we have the canon of Scripture. And so what we share now has to be biblically accurate. And so we prophesy, we proclaim. That's what prophecy means in this text. He says, if service in our serving, this is just ministering to people, meeting others' needs, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This could be admonishing, this could be consoling, and it could be encouraging. That Greek word means all three of those things. If you see that happen throughout the New Testament, it could mean any of those things. To the one, uh, uh, so to the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, this is about giving of finances. Some people have been given the actual spiritual gift of generosity. And so many of you have that gift and share in that gift so often. Now, it's not a license for those of us who don't have the gift to not give, but some of us are designed to be givers. To the one who leads with zeal, to the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, uh, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, these verses, they don't mean that that you can't ever do them if you don't have the special gifting. You can be hospitable and serve others at all times because it's needed and necessary. You, you don't have to be gifted to, to love people and to be generous and to exhort. But there are people who are specifically gifted in these areas. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And we referenced this last week in 1 Peter 4. But as each has received a gift, so Peter's telling us that everyone has received a gift, we are to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, that whoever speaks as one who speaks 
oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The point is this. All of these gifts and all of the gifts that I haven't mentioned, they should work in unity in service to God. They are given for that purpose and that purpose alone. That everything we, should, we do should bring honor and glory to the God who has given us those gifts so graciously. But God empowers them. He gives gifts to men, but he empowers those gifts through his spirit. But did you notice what didn't make the list as we read those scriptures this morning? Did you notice that being a jerk didn't make it to the list? Like being a jerk is not a spiritual gift. I have a really close friend who I've known for a really long time. I know. And she's been married to me for almost 20 years. She lets me know that my, my perceived gift of jerkiness is not from the Lord. She does it with great grace, though, by the way. Being a jerk is not a gift. Being a mope is not a gift either. Mopiness is not a spiritual gift. If you always only have something negative to say, please know that you're not fun to be around. Don't be a jerk or be a mope. Yes, there are times to mourn and there are times to grieve, but the Bible is clear that people who know Jesus, who have the Spirit living inside of them, who are being empowered and living in His power, are to have the joy of the Lord. I didn't say it. God did. God says that we are to have his joy and we are to be filled with gladness. Those are things that we're supposed to have inside of us. That's another sermon. Stinginess, grumpiness, laziness, apathy. All of those things could go on the list. Those are not spiritual gifts. So how do we find our gifts? What's the best way? And if I'm reading my Bible correctly, God has given us gifts. And so they're already inside of us. And so the best way to find a gift is to act. To do something. To get involved. Maybe it is something that you're good at. Maybe your gifting is represented in a talent that you have. Maybe it's not. I don't know. What are you passionate about? But a very common way people end up finding their gift is simply asking the question, what is needed? And out of that simple question, what is needed, and you hear what is needed, God can sometimes birth inside of you an awakening to what it is that he has for you to do. Now, if your passion is ribbon dancing. We might not have a place for you here. Uh, I'm not against ribbon dancing, but if that's your passion, we just don't have ribbon dancing at West Hill, so that might not be it. Um, you know, that ministry is just not available right now. Um, but that excitement and that exuberance might be tweaked to joyfully worship and cheerfully greet someone every Sunday morning. I know I've said this before, 
But one of the most important things that happens on a Sunday morning is what happens at those doors right out there. Sometimes those smiles mean a lot to people. They're coming in, they're carrying their own unique baggage and hurt and grief and drama and all the things. And so sometimes that is a tremendous ministry, especially to guests, especially to someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. It can mean the world to somebody. That ministry is extremely important. By the way, we have a need in that ministry right now. So I'd love for someone to serve in that area. You can sign up on mywhbc.com. But spiritual gifts are given to build the body of Christ, and we find them by getting involved and by serving. See, when we serve, it becomes clear what our gifts are and what our gifts are not. I have a friend in this church who I will not name, but I have great respect for. And not long ago, there was a need inside the church. And we were, we were coming out of you know, the, the, the COVID situation and, and people weren't coming back to in-person worship and we were needing people to serve in certain roles and we had some vacancies and some things that we needed filled. And this gentleman was like, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna volunteer and I'm gonna serve. And he volunteered to serve in a a ministry that was not his thing. But he tried it. And he got out of that ministry, and he's serving in other ministries now. And God's using him and blessing him. But he quickly found out what is not the right thing for him. I tried children's ministry once. I'm terrible at it. Like, I am the last person you want down there. You don't even want me to walk down there. It's bad. So, like, maybe that's not where you're supposed to be. That's okay. But we need people down there too. But I do respect that friend for giving it a shot and being honest with himself. See, if you don't know what your gifts are, we can ask God for wisdom. James tells us that we can ask him for wisdom and he gives it. And then we consider our passions and we find an area that needs help. And we do this because it builds up others and not ourselves. When it comes to using our gifts to build others up, There is something else that we have to consider. Does our gift, does our talent, does our skill, does it build me up more? Or does it build other people? Are we utilizing our gifts in ways to build others? The Apostle Apostle Paul actually speaks to this when he he compares the different gifts in 1 Corinthians. the The ones who edify others versus the ones who edify their own selves. He talks about this a ton in 1 Corinthians. But author Gregory Brown says this. It's a rather lengthy quote. He says, When we use these gifts that God has given us, they should be used to build others up, just like prophecy was to edify the church. So if you think you have the gift of teaching, and you teach, and you feel edified, good. But if nobody else is edified or encouraged by your teaching, it may not be your gift. Typically, spiritual gifts edify both the user and the receiver. When we serve, we find out what edifies you and others and what doesn't. You will never know what your gift is if you're not involved in serving. You will never know if you are being edified and if others are being edified if you sit on the sidelines. You'll never be able to know. And you'll never experience all the blessings that God does graciously give those who do serve and who are involved in his work. You find which gifts you have and which ones you don't. And they continue to grow. So, make 
an effort to serve. And we're going to talk a little about that a little bit more in a minute. Back to Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 10. I, wanted, I, didn't, I was going to skip these verses, but I just want to briefly give you some, some context here. In verse 9, he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So this is, is just communicating to us that Christ is the foundation that he fills and he, he gives and your life is to be built on him. That's just, that's just a quick flyover version of what those verses are telling us. So is your life built on Christ this morning? As a Christian, you are saved by Jesus until you build your life on him. If you're not a Christian, what are you building your life on? But back to this question of how was the church built up there's a process for having a strong church, strong church, one that's built up. In verse 11, Paul continues, and he gave the apostles. These are people who are sent out, the sent ones, the prophets. The Greek definition means a bold proclaimer of a divine message. We just talked about that a minute ago. The evangelists. These are people who are specifically gifted in evangelism. It doesn't mean they're the only ones who share the gospel. And then the shepherds and teachers. These are pastors, or maybe uh, you, you refer to them as, as elders, ministry leaders, uh, pastoral shepherds, whatever uh, language you use. I am that person. I am a shepherd to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So a pastor's job, a, a church leader's job is to, to teach. My job is primarily to study the Bible and stand before this body and proclaim the message. That is my primary job. Biblically, that is my primary job. Now, a lot of people like to tell me what else I should do, but that is my primary role as a pastor, is to teach and preach and communicate God's word. I do this to, I'll use this word, to motivate people to do. That's my job. That's what we see in the book of Acts. When the church is launched, Peter preaches, the people are devoted to the apostles' teaching, and then God does a great work in those churches. Writing his word in your heart. But we are built to serve. So the purpose of the gathering, other than worship, and there's no specific style that's required. We gather together to worship one name, and his name is Jesus. And whatever songs we sing are the songs we sing. We worship him and him alone. And we gather together to be equipped, but not just be equipped. We love to stop there when we have our debates in the church world. We love, I've done it. The gathering on Sunday is to equip the saints. Yes, but underline what he says next. For the work of ministry. My job is to teach and equip you to do. We don't just gather here to learn more. The purpose of this gathering right now is not so you can just get filled up with more information that is just information. I haven't done my job well, if that's what this is to you. 
We gather together to learn, to be equipped. You are the saints for the work of ministry. When we work together, it builds us up, by the way. But when we get together and we gossip and we murmur and we commiserate, it doesn't build up. So maybe you should get together with your friends and think, how can we build up our church by serving it through the grace that Jesus has given us? How can we use our gifts to build up and not tear down? So my job is to teach and to equip so people will work together and everyone works together. And when they do, it says it right there in verse 12, for building up the body of Christ. Preachers teach, people hear, people do, I do, just like you have to, and it builds up the body. Practicing and doing is emphasized, not just learning. Equip them for work. That's my job. I would rather you be slow in your growth and fast in your, in your serving. Because in serving is how you grow. You will never be a mature Christian apart from service. It's all just knowledge, and knowledge does not equal maturity. You have to put it into action. Verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We are strengthened with truth. Verse 14 goes back to last week's teaching on false teaching. So we must, as we see, we must be like Christ. We must gather knowledge. Absolutely, we must know right doctrine. These things are important. Please don't hear me say that they're not. Right doctrine is, 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 is needed for right living. And false teaching is something that just tosses us around. It gets us all worked up and messed up. We are to grow up in him. He is the example. I had a conversation with a gentleman that I respect greatly last week. And he made a statement that I've thought about but never really put words to. Sometimes the greatest false teacher in your life is you. Sometimes you are communicating things to your own heart that are not through the lens of correct doctrine. It's false teaching. It's your own words. It's your own sinful heart and mind, and it's, it's leading you astray. You're being tossed around by your own, your own self. And sometimes it is those who are proclaiming something other than Christ. So we have to be strengthened by truth. That's why, that's another reason why we gather, absolutely. To be strengthened by the truth of God's word because it is enough for us. And verse 15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We should serve in love. We should grow up and then speak the truth in love, in maturity. We do this together in unity, in community, togetherness. 
we speak the truth in love just like Christ did. He said hard things. He just did them in love. And verse 16 sums it all up. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I could stop there. You see, when we serve in love, the church is built up. It always comes back to service. That's what Jesus said. He came to serve, not to be served. And that service is what built people up. He served the disciples. He taught them. He met their needs. He encouraged them. He equipped them. He sent them out. It built them up. When we serve in love, the church is built up. It works properly. And it grows. And it's built up in love. I want to carefully extend a challenge. I am fully aware that our church has significantly changed in the last 12 to 18 months. That was on purpose. It was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It was on purpose. I'm fully aware of all the things that we all disagree on. Every single one of them. But they've done zero building. As a pastor, as your pastor, as the one who stands here and teaches and proclaims the truth, I want us to be this church. I want us to be this church. No, our culture doesn't look the same. No, our technology doesn't look the same. No, our leaders don't look the same. And I'm okay with that. Because God is a changing God as far as what he does in our world. He uses all different things. He uses all different types of people. He's unchanging. His message is unchanging. His holiness never changes. His gospel never changes. But when we serve each other in love, the church is built up. So as you think back on your conversations this week, as I think back on my conversations this week, did I do my part to build the church up in love and in service and in humility? You have to answer those questions. But that's what we're about. That's what we're about in 2022. We want to have this Acts chapter 9 kind of experience. We want to have peace that is centered around unity in Jesus Christ and things that we can be unified around. And then we get to work building. And the cool thing is, is we don't actually do the building. God builds his church when we're faithful to do the work that he's called us to do. And so, 
We gather together, I teach, we grow, we're given gifts, we serve, we love. And when we serve in love, the church is built up. And so that's how God builds his church, when we serve each other. So the question that I have as we wrap up is this. Are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you just someone who is sitting on the sidelines? Maybe you're a part of the group that is bringing unrest to the church. Maybe you need to start with how can you bring peace to your relationships and to your conversations. Maybe you're in that group that is allowing false teaching to penetrate your own heart. Maybe you are in a, in a place of gossip. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you're just simply not involved in serving and you're not doing anything to contribute to the work that God is doing in our community. I have conversations every week with people who are having gospel conversations. That's building up the church, by the way. I have conversations every week with people who are discipling other Christians. That's building up the church. What would happen if all of us did that? I mean, you think if there's 300 adults in the room right now, if all 300 of us decided that tomorrow morning we were going to make an effort to pursue Jesus in every conversation and share Jesus, that all of us were going to have someone that doesn't know the gospel, and all of us was going to have one person that we were going to bring to church on a Sunday, that all of, if all of us decided that we were going to disciple someone, we could literally see 300 people added and discipled to the church in one single week. How crazy is that? But we have to learn and do. So are we all doing our part? Will you build your life on Christ? Will you grow in knowledge? Will you get involved and will you serve? Will you find your gift? And will you do that in love? A question that I get asked a lot that I don't ask you a lot is simple, but do you want to see our church grow? Do you want to see our church stronger? And by the way, we have a pretty strong church right now. But do you want to see it grow as we saw it grow in the book of Acts? Started out pretty small, but the Spirit lit the flame, and the people were obedient, and God did a great work. But we don't get to see the work if we're on the sidelines. You want to see our church built up to continue to be built up? That's what it's going to take. Serving one another in love. Kingdom work. So will you join us? Will you be involved in that kind of work? The Acts chapter 9 kind of work. The Ephesians chapter 4 kind of work. Because that's the only work that we should be about. So far, we've covered that the church had peace, they were being built up, and next week we're going to talk about walking and living in the fear of the Lord. So don't miss that. 